Welcome to the Politics of Disaster podcast, a series created by students of the Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies in collaboration with the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope that you enjoy this episode in our four-part series. We have a very special episode for you today as a part of a four-part series on the Beirut explosion. In the first part of this episode, we will be covering protest activity following the explosion. Our first guest today is Nadim Elkek. He is a researcher at the Lebanese Center for Policy Studies and research associate at Lebanon Support. Nadim is trained in political science and Middle Eastern studies at Amherst College and is currently a graduate fellow at the American University of Beirut's sociology program. His work generally focuses on the connections between sectarian politics, social movements, and neoliberalism, with a particular focus on emerging political groups in Lebanon. Nadim also co-hosts and produces the Alternative Frequencies podcast, covering Lebanon's ongoing developments and crises. Thank you so much for joining us today, Nadim. Thank you for having me. So just to start off, could you give us an overview of the protest situation and how it has evolved since last year? Sure. Yeah. So um, in case listeners didn't know, uh, Lebanon had a massive uprising that started on October 17, 2019. And it was the first uh, mass uprising of its kind in Lebanon's modern history. Um, It was very much decentralized. It was happening across areas of Lebanon. In the past, we had had some movements, but they were mostly centered on the capital and a few other urban areas. But that time it was like really nationwide. Um, the protests uh, like shut down the country, basically. There were constant roadblocks for weeks and weeks. Um, and that kept on going until around December. And around that time, our social and economic crisis had uh, really deteriorated. A lot of the initial condition that had brought people to the streets in October became even worse. Our bank, We couldn't access our bank accounts anymore. There was a, ma- a massive... Uh, Uh, deterioration of our local currency. We are a mostly uh, import-dependent economy, so most of very basic goods are becoming harder and harder to access. And as time goes on, things are only getting worse because our uh, political leaders who are still in power have been uh, unable to address any components of this very multi-layered crisis. So since December, uh, protests started becoming a little bit more uh, violence in terms of the strategies that protesters were deploying. They were starting to target the financial sector a lot more. A lot of those protests targeted private banks uh, and whatnot. And at, around the same time, there was a massive increase in repression. And this repression came from very different actors. There was state-sponsored uh, uh, repression from uh, internal security forces, but also from the army. And we were also seeing some informal militias associated to traditional sectarian ruling parties also um, attack uh, peaceful protesters. Um, So that went on until around the pandemic period. And by that time, uh, protesters were worn out. There had been uh, uh, dozens of casualties and there were, I mean, of uh, um, assassinations by the security forces. And then... um, Ultimately, around the pan- when the pandemic started, we were already starting to see a certain decrease in the amount of protesters that were joining. The transition into more uh, violent uh, 
uh, revolutionary tactics also may have uh, intimidated some members of the uh, protest movement. So by the time the pandemic came and because of the health crisis that was anticipated, the protests really very much regressed. They ha- they reemerged sporadically every couple of weeks, but ultimately it was nothing compared to the initial momentum that was created. Uh, and then the explosion happened. Some people ex- uh, in August 4th, there was the Beirut explosion of the port, and a lot of people expected maybe the movement to pick up uh, some steam then. There was one massive uh, mobilization that also ended in violent repression. And since then, we also haven't re-experienced the same kinds of mobilization, especially because the pandemic really got a lot worse over the past couple of months. How are people expressing discontent with the Lebanese government in the absence of mass in-person protests? Yeah, yeah, there's definitely been a shift in, uh, in strategies because people couldn't mobilize and rely on mass movements anymore like they were. Uh, you saw a shift in more like organizing at the grassroots level. So you were seeing, uh, we're seeing a lot of uh, um, mutual aid initiatives that emerge, especially after the explosion. Um, a lot of uh, organizing at the syndical and union levels, because uh, uh, historic, like, and since the civil war ended in 1990, traditional parties co-opted a lot of the uh, co-opted the whole labor movement. So there's been attempts to try to reclaim, uh, uh, like. Uh, um, labor organizing. Um, we're also seeing student activism really increase. There's been a, a multiple student elections held over the past couple of weeks, and uh, anti-sectarian actors and independent groups have been uh, winning a lot of these elections. So following the explosion, many middle-class professionals who were originally involved in the protests have left Lebanon. How does this impact the prospects for protest movements post-COVID-19? Yeah, that's uh, that's an important point. I mean, right now, because of the horde securitization that's going on worldwide, it's been a lot very difficult for a lot of people who want to leave to leave. Um, there has been have been some who were able to leave, mainly people who maybe hold uh, um, dual nationalities, who have uh, relatives in other areas, or uh, for different for who. But that's very circumstantial. I think a majority of the people. Of uh, who want to leave, even in the middle class, who may have some money in the banks, are restricted because right now all of people's savings are stuck in the banking sector and they can't access them. So um, even if they wanted to, it's still a little bit uh, far-fetched or maybe premature to talk about a migration crisis yet. I think it's yet to be seen, and especially once um, the pandemic is past us. Uh, uh, that'll be interesting to see if and how much uh, flow of like emigration are we going to see. During the Civil War, a lot of people did emigrate, but at the time, they they still had access to their savings. Uh, they still had the financial resources and borders weren't as rigid. Uh, the Gulf was more welcoming of uh, willing to accept work visas for Lebanese citizens. Europe was also... Uh, a more uh, a place where it was easier to get uh, work permits. Now it's a lot more difficult. So all of these things are to keep in mind. And I guess time will tell once this pandemic is past us, if indeed the number of people who are going to leave this country will end up being uh, significant to the point where you're losing this revolutionary core that participated in the uprising. It was mostly young people in their 20s and 30s. 
who were uh, going day in and day out to the squares to protest. So, um, uh, on a, like personally, I don't think that the socioeconomic conditions right now will allow enough uh, enough people to leave. Poverty rates are massive, and it's going to be uh, very difficult for people to be able to leave legally. Now, of course, there is going to be an increase in uh, like. Uh, uh, trying to cross borders uh, illegally, and we're already seeing a spike in that. But I doubt that this number will be uh, big enough uh, for it to change the whole uh, uh, demographic balance. Nadim, you mentioned the student response um, in regards to the protests. As a member of the American University of Beirut's student government, could you describe student-led responses to the explosion and how the explosion has impacted student politics? Yeah. Um, so since the explosion happened on August 4th, that was uh, before the fall semester had started in most, most, most universities. Uh, the, there were still some exams for uh, uh, the public Lebanese university for them to take in summer because of the delays that took place uh, due to the pandemic and the teaching hiatus. Um, but ultimately, their response was to tap mostly on a volunteer basis, and they weren't necessarily doing it within the scope of, uh, in the name of their student groups, but they were more like participating in the relief efforts that emerged after the explosion, different uh, NGOs emerged, different local initiatives. So they were more uh, like students, we were more engaging in, uh, in relief efforts that were part of the community-led initiatives that were taking place. So it wasn't necessarily a a student-led initiative more than it was just uh, expressing this communal solidarity by uh, contributing in any way we can to uh, efforts that were put in place by um, people who are more in the know. Because it was a very, um, um, the explosion area was still needed a lot of experts to come in and determine what were the extent of the damages. And we didn't want to compromise the safety of anyone. You couldn't just go into buildings that didn't necessarily have stable structures that may fall apart at any moment. So um, I think we had to like more find our place and know how to contribute in the best way we can while listening to those who may have more experience in issues like these. Could you perhaps go into some more detail about some of the efforts that students supported? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So um, in the areas that were mostly impacted, uh, there were a lot of initiatives that revolved around, uh, you know, securing uh, housing for those who were left homeless in the aftermath of the shot of the explosion. The state state response was non-existent. So it was mostly people full volunteering to go clean the the glass off of people's uh, homes if there were different uh, if they needed uh, if they didn't have access to any they needed any health um, um, uh, support they would go to their homes on a regular basis and so and make sure that they were doing well uh, we also engaged in other initiatives that had to do with food distribution so there were a lot of different areas that were near the port where there were stations that were established where uh, people could go and uh, sign up uh, like their names, their contact information, and they would then be contacted again when there were different relief packages that were uh, made available. So it was um, the initiative 
was really building on each other's work and each one was finding their own way of how can they contribute, what kind of resources do they have access to, and what are the types of skills that they can provide uh, for relief efforts. So student politics in Lebanon are often seen as a reflection of broader uh, Lebanese politics. Um, Could you maybe describe how that has changed and developed over the last year? Yeah, yeah. Um, So student politics, especially before the Civil War, uh, were a central part of this uh, of a broader uh, leftist movement that was trying to advocate for radical political changes. Um, they uh, they always espoused. They were very anti-sectarian from the start, and the student movement was very close to the old left at the time. After the civil war, a lot of this uh, uh, political landscape, oppositionist landscape. Uh, changed. Um, there was an increased uh, uh, neoliberalism and a certain NGOization of uh, political activism that made student politics somewhat take a backseat. And there was also a strong uh, efforts by political parties to take over student governments. Um, so they were pouring a lot of resources there. There was a lot of corruption involved, a lot of allegations of different uh students promising like guaranteeing financial parties sectarian parties guaranteeing financial aid to certain students who voted for them guaranteeing access to uh exams or other ways of like um cheating their way through through better grades so there were a bunch of like clientelistic services that were promised here and there uh for students who were willing to back uh, sectarian parties in student elections and that created a kind of uh, uh, environment and political culture and university campuses that wasn't conducive to proper uh, to proper organizing, uh, and the student movement took a major backseat since. Now, what we're seeing more recently is that over the past um, eight to ten years, I would say, there's been a certain gradual uh, increase in student organizing. The AB Secular Club was formed uh, over that period, and uh, other secular clubs across different uh, uh, private universities and the public Lebanese university uh, started emerging and becoming more and more vocal. Now, they still predominantly lost in student elections, but that changed massively since the October uh, revolution. And today we're seeing that actually show off in tangible outcomes, wherein, for example, at the American University of Beirut and its 19-member student council 15 of those seats went to independents. A lot of sectarian parties didn't even participate in the election because they were afraid of the results. And they had seen at the Lebanese American University a few weeks before, some of those sectarian uh, parties did run and they lost massively. Uh, Independents also won there. And now there are upcoming uh, elections in another private university. Um, so we're seeing those things bear fruit uh, to some regard. I think that this process of political change and the aftermath of the uprising, which ended up in disappointment for many, is actually going to start uh, showing some of its uh, uh, the seeds that it, su- uh, that it put really bec- now with those little victories, whether it's in the uh, labor unions where we're seeing organizing also occur there, and we can talk about that if you want to, but also at the student level. 
Um, so there's a lot of things to build on and actually uh, um, to look forward to in the midst of this like very deteriorating and difficult time. So building on that, do you think the explosion has had a unifying or divisive uh, impact on sectarian relations among students or perhaps more broadly? Yeah, I think the explosion was more like uh, it, it was kind of a, a, a nightmare, you know, where we had already been through so much that when it happened, people weren't surprised, you know, we were in shock, we were traumatized, but we weren't surprised because we knew what this political, how uh, incompetent this political class is. And we weren't surprised that they would be uh, so uh, foolish to actually risk, uh, risk the lives of thousands and thousands of people by keeping uh, such a dangerous uh, substance right next to residential areas. Um, I think that the effect it had was uh, was twofold. In one way, it brought us down a lot. Like it took a huge mental toll. It was a man- major blow. Uh, it brought in a lot of anger, but also a lot of despair. And it felt like uh, really sad because it had been such an eventful year. And with that to happen, it it was it, a lot of people just couldn't believe it. Um, the effect it had on sectarian dynamics. I mean, frankly, I'm not sure how much in and of itself as an event it, it impacted sectarian relations. Um, I think that the uprising had a more profound effect on sectarian dynamics. Uh, and by the time the explosion came, uh, it was already clear that a huge portion of this population uh, did not believe nor support this political class anymore. Of course, there's a, there's a certain, uh, uh, some of those uh, parties still maintain substantial bases, but uh, ultimately speaking, it's not a coincidence that hundreds of thousands of people took to the streets across Lebanon when the main slogan of the uprising was all means all, kelonyani kelon. So for for the amount the hundreds of thousands of people to show up under such a slogan that enough is an indicator that a huge portion of this population are fed up already and the explosion was just like uh, another event that confirmed what we already knew, knew about uh what this political class is about and whose interests it represents so you mentioned the slogan kilon yani kilon um could you explain uh, a bit about what that means yeah, yeah. So uh, the thing about the Lebanese political system and what distinguishes it from a lot of other uh, regimes in the region, uh, we most closely rep- uh, resemble the Iraqi political system where you have a power sharing agreement between different uh, sectarian communities. And this power sh- sharing system makes it so that you don't have like a certain uh, uh, head of state or one person in whom if you were to organize some kind of uprising that there's a target that you need to take down or get rid of the regime is made up of different uh, uh, like many dictators I think that's the way, way main way to put it so that way even if you chop off one head you still have like five or six others so usually when we think about the Lebanese political context we think of like six or seven main sectarian parties that have been around for a while and have that have held most of the ministerial portfolios, seats in parliament, and so on. Um, so when the slogan became, which means all means all, 
it means that we're not going to fall within your divisive games where any kind of uh, uprising or social turmoil will be attributed to some kind of sectarian tension or will be diverted to try to attribute the blame to a specific sectarian party. It signaled to this political class that we see through this facade that you put forward as if you're against one another. We realize that you are codependent and that in order to take you down, we have to see you as this one entity and you're all complicit in that. So that was the main uh, symbolism behind this uh, expression. Given what you've said, Nadim, how do you anticipate the government responding to a fresh wave of protests? And do you think they will be more receptive to future protests? I think most of us have realized that there's no way to actually reach this political class, that their interests are very clear. I mean, we're in the midst of a massive financial crisis that's going to risk, that already has uh, led us to one of the worst public debts in the world. And there's a lot of banks that are going to have to go bankrupt because of the magnitude of our financial crisis. And our political and financial elites are very much one and the same. They're in the same bed. All of the corruption, uh, all the type of political economy that was established, if banks were to go down, they would bring down with them all of the political class and its secrets. So when you think about it that way, this political class, as long as those same parties and leaders are in power, there is no way they're going to do that to themselves. They would they would end up behind uh, uh, in prison, simply. And they know that. So it's unrealistic to expect any kind of popular pressure or any kind of pressure to implement reforms to work. What we need is a, a structural and systemic change. We need new faces in power and something much more more uh, much more uh, touching at the core of the way these practices work. So when we're calling for reforms to the judicial system or we're talking to uh, fair forensic audits to the coffers of our central bank and whatnot, all of these things are not being provided and they're not moving forward with them, although it's been uh, more than a year since our crisis began. So that just shows you how uh, unwilling this political class is in its current form to take these steps. So I think what protests now are doing is basically uh, continuing to add pressure on this political establishment to understand that their time has passed and that it's time for a new uh, fresh faces to come in. And in order for that to happen, then a lot of, uh, whether it's through a lot, a lot of people view it in different ways where the process of change can come through the channels of the state where you're running in elections and uh, progressively building a certain coalition that is capable of addressing this crisis. And others are more focused on building the kind of uh, grassroots networks that you need to build for the long term. So there's this tension or this balance that you see between are we trying to build something a foundation in the long term, but we also have to be cognizant at the same time that there's an urgent short-term crisis that needs to be implemented. And there have been different suggestions for how to address that, uh, whether to form uh, a temporary uh, transitional government type of thing that has legis legislative authorities that can bypass parliament in the short term just to be able to pass the needed reforms to uh, control the financial uh, meltdown and then hold parliamentary elections where uh, hopefully a new pair of political leaders can emerge. Um, so there are different approaches um, to the issue. And I don't think that 
uh, protesters, by going back to the streets, would be expecting uh, this political class and its current form to address their demands. On a slightly different note, what is your opinion on the proposed memorial park at the site of the port explosion? And more broadly, what efforts are being made at protecting urban heritage in Beirut? Yeah, that that was uh, that made uh, a little bit of news on social media uh, last week. Uh, so basically, just to explain what that was about, uh, I didn't even watch it on television, but I think it was some kind of architect or someone maybe affiliated to the political class who was saying that we should turn the site of the port explosion um, into some kind of uh, memorial park uh, or something of the kind. So another one of those uh, probably real estate projects where uh, the political class, his cronies, will end up uh, getting a lot of money to build this uh, probably somewhat luxurious area that will only be accessible uh, to a certain elite in this country. Uh, That's what they did after uh, the end of the Civil War when they reconstructed downtown Beirut, where a lot of uh, real estate contractors were brought in, a lot of very... Uh, traditional areas in Beirut that hold a lot of cultural heritage were were, uh, taken down. And instead of them, you had like super expensive real estate that was mostly inaccessible to Lebanese. Uh, Most of it was empty throughout the year because the real estate was so expensive that it was mostly owned by uh, millionaires and billionaires that lived abroad. Um, So when we hear about such a solution for it to memorialize the explosion, it reeks of uh, like this uh, uh, approach to urban heritage and urban landscape that is very much disconnected from the realities of people on the ground and that really strips the city of its essence and of its identity. Um, so we're used to hearing things like that. We also heard things like that regarding the reconstruction of residential areas that were impacted by the explosion. Um, so uh, really, we need a, a completely radically different approach to how we approach uh, to how we think about our urban heritage and how to tangibly go about uh, like practical policies that can address uh, the aftermath of the explosion without uh, harming whatever we have left of this uh, heritage. Um, there, so it, it's a rather um, it's not surprising to, to hear that, but it's also something far-fetched. I mean, right now, there's, uh, before thinking about what's <laughs> about a park to memorialize the explosion or whatever, uh, there are people who are going to be struggling and who are struggling to uh, get their basic medication, their basic uh, uh, food needs, and a lot of other basic necessities that uh, are very much tied up to ad- ad- implementing core reforms that are needed to begin receiving some grant and aid from the international community to uh, somewhat redress this economy, hopefully in a matter that is more uh, sustainable and that will address deeply entrenched structural inequalities. Have there been any grassroots uh, efforts to protect this urban heritage? Yeah, yeah, there's been a lot of different initiatives. Some of them were already around. Uh, you had a lot of different uh, grassroots organizations who were protecting different public spaces, like one of the only green spaces in Beirut, uh, uh, the Hadish uh, of Beirut, uh, the 
uh, also on the coastal coastal areas that were being constantly privatized and that were turned into touristic resorts. So there were a lot of organizations mobilizing on these issues. So when the Beirut explosion came, a lot of those different actors had already prior experience dealing with those issues. You also had a lot of uh, uh, urban um, um, experts in urban policy and other urbanists who were, were engaging in mapping efforts to try to document the scale of the damages and to try to uh, advocate for the kinds of policies that would be needed to protect uh, this uh, urban heritage while also uh, being uh, cognizant of the types of uh, infrastructural damage that was posed and how best to go about addressing it. And there were a lot of studies that were published on how to go about this like uh, socially just approach to uh, reconstruction and to urban heritage. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of those solutions that exist get thrown in the drawers of politicians and never get actually uh, implemented, as has been the case for so many other portfolios in the past. Um, to close out, uh, what will you be looking for as signals or signposts of how Lebanon's political situation and the protests are developing in the coming months and years? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, so I think uh, right now there's a set of reforms that need to be implemented for the IMF to come in with a package uh, that would pump some much needed like dollars into the economy and that would uh, allow other types of uh, very targeted sectoral reforms to take place. So those reforms mostly, uh, it's not to say that the IMF plan is the be-all answer to it, but it's just that within the current uh, like world economic structure, there is no other way to secure those types of funds for such a massive economic meltdown. Uh, under current conditions. Uh, and we're an economy, as I said, that's very much import-reliant. We don't really have a productive economy. So it's very difficult to get back on our feet by ourselves. And the main uh, supplier of that amount of uh, uh, aid and loans would be the IMF. So that will be a main thing to keep an eye on. And what kind of IMF deal is struck? What kind of social safety nets will be implemented? Are we able to get a real social protection program going that would allow for the types of for the types of austerity measures that would accompany an IMF deal to be mitigated at least on those most vulnerable and those most marginalized? So, would an IMF program would we be able to push during negotiations for a package that is uh, uh, capable of at least meeting those needs? Um, so that will be something essential. And depending on how that goes, that will also influence how likely people are to go back to the streets. Um, so the way things have been going so far, this political class hasn't been able to meet the criteria that was set by the IMF to get a deal. They haven't been able to form a government yet to uh, go about implementing those preliminary reforms that would then unlock those funds. So if they continue dragging on, that only means that things are only getting harder and harder for people in Lebanon. Uh, and that will definitely lead to uproar. Uh, it's yet to be seen if people are willing to join the streets back at the same scale as they did in October 17. We also don't know how long this pandemic is going to rage. Our amount daily cases are 
like have increased tremendously over the past couple of months. We're getting 2,000 cases daily when earlier and early in summer we were still at like 20 um so so it's been like very overwhelming and it's been difficult for groups to be able to mobilize their ranks in the same way so they're more focused on the types of uh, organizing at the more uh, local level that i described and that's more internal so trying to have more robust organizational structures because a lot of those groups are relatively new and they haven't had the time to develop develop internally yet. So uh, right now, I think it's going to be unlikely that we see massive protests reemerge, uh, at least not on not before uh, the pandemic is somewhat under control. Nadim, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate your valuable insight. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. In this part of our episode, we will be covering the political implications of the explosion. Our next guest today is Dr. Basil Saluk. Dr. Saluk is an associate professor of political science at the Lebanese American University in Beirut and a senior fellow at the Lebanese Center for Policy Studies. His current research interests include intersectional critiques of power-sharing arrangements in post-war states, the philosophy of reconciliation in divided societies, and Middle East international relations after popular uprisings. Dr. Saluk, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So first, could you give us an overview of the government's response following the Beirut explosion? What were the perceived successes and failures of the government's response? I think one of the most interesting thing about the port explosion is that for many people living in Lebanon, uh, the real reaction was to ask ourselves, what, what response? Uh, the early days after the explosion, it really didn't feel that there was actually a government response. Uh, In fact, what we saw is a government that was trying to instrumentalize the explosion in order to break a a kind of an international siege that was... uh, that it it uh, it felt was being organized against it, and uh, a, you know a couple of days after the explosion, and given the state of paralysis uh, in terms of the official response, you could see uh, civil society assuming uh, responsibility and uh, undertaking the real uh, response to the to the explosion. And I, I don't think this, this should surprise us because those of us who have been studying uh, Lebanese politics uh, would know very well that actually the government doesn't have a centralized uh, disaster risk management unit. In fact, uh, uh, back in 2001, a, an MP had uh, tabled a law in, in Parliament for discussion, and it was uh, it was tabled again in 2012 to create a kind of a centralized disaster risk management unit, but it had never really been uh, promulgated. And the reason this was the case is that there was fear among the different uh, members of the sectarian elite that any kind of centralized disaster risk management unit would take away from all these other institutions that already exist in the Lebanese state 
but that were earmarked for certain sects and to undertake clientelist services on behalf of the sectarian leaders. And so the fact that the the government, uh, the state really did not have a proper response, uh, I think was a a direct consequence of uh, the, the failure across the years to come up with a centralized body that would respond to whether it is natural disasters or something like the port explosion. And this says a lot about the way in which the clientelistic nature of the political system meant that uh, the immediate response would be haphazard and it will consist simply in kind of clearing you know, the rubbles in the, in the explosion area. Um, so I want to follow up on something that you just said. You said that the government attempted to instrumentalize the crisis. Um, in what way did they do that? Um, we have to put this in context, of course. This is, this is the cabinet of Hassan Diab, which was considered by a big chunk of the international community, but specifically the U.S., uh, as Hezbollah's cabinet, because it, it did not have representation from, say, the future movement and other, other parties. And so the immediate response to the, uh, by the by, by the government and by the presidency was to say that, you know, we have been contacted by uh, a number of states that have offered us aid and help and expertise and so on. And really, in so doing, uh, trying to suggest that what had been a siege uh, uh, set against the cabinet by uh, some countries was you know, broken. Uh, and, and so that's what I mean by when I say instrumentalizing it to, to break what they had considered to be a siege against them. Um, so to follow that question, in your opinion, why sort of have these, are these failures taking place? Um, you know, why, why are they perceived as failures? Why why does the government not seem to be able to handle the crisis mm. in the way that they should? Again, I think it has something to do with the kind of state that was created in the post-war uh, period. And it's, a, it's, it's really a state which loathes anything near accountability and transparency. And so what, what we discovered really uh, and I think this is important for context. I think w- one of the things that we discovered immediately after the explosion is that the port in Beirut acts as a kind of a miniature, miniature, if you like, of the political economy of post-war Lebanon and the political economy of corruption in post-war Lebanon, meaning that it's, it's really a place that is divided among the different uh, political factions, the, the different sectarian factions. It's, it's a kind of a place that is divided uh, into, into turfs, really, among, among the different sectarian groups. And it's, a, it's an incredible money-making machine for anything that is uh, involved with the 
political economy of, of corruption in post-war Lebanon. And so you, to, to undertake a transparent and uh, uh, professional investigation of what had actually led to the explosion really meant to, uh, to sort of undermine all of the clientelistic networks that were embedded in this small world that is called the port. And so in, in many ways, the, the fact that the, the, the investigation has so far led to not much really, if not nothing, I think is emblematic of the kind of state we have in, in Lebanon and, and the kind of state that was created in the post-war period. And what I mean is a state that is really built around clientelistic networks and relations. And if you try to bring into the state any measure of accountability, then this will prove to be the unmaking, the unraveling of these clientelistic networks. And, and this is why it's, it's proven so difficult to, to undertake a transparent uh, investigation. And this is why it is, it, uh, and this is why most of the public just doesn't believe that there is any willingness on the part of the political elite to undertake a transparent investigation. Dr. Salouk, can you go into more detail about these specific sectarian divisions and how they are impacting the disaster response? So, so again, we have to put this con- in the context of the post-war state. So the post-war state in Lebanon uh, is really, uh, I call it kind of an archipelago of clientelistic networks, whereby uh, the sectarian elite, and particularly those who had actually fought the war, um, uh, divided the state among themselves and divided the public sector and state institutions among among themselves. And really, the one place where you could see the political economy of corruption operating smoothly is in the port, whereby a lot of the resources that were supposed through custom duties and so on, that a lot of the revenues that should have gone to the state uh, was distributed amongst uh, amongst the different political factions or those who represented them in the political economy of the port. And so my argument is that in many ways, the port is mirror to the state that was created uh, after the war, meaning uh, a state whose main task was to uh, lubricate and use its resources to lubricate clientelistic networks that serve the interest of the sectarian political, political elite. And so there is this difficulty to, to undertake anything called a, a transparent investigation because once you start uh, accusing people or naming names, these people, have, these people are really uh, partisans of certain political actors. And so... Uh, then, then you know the pieces of the puzzle start falling, and so that's why, as I said, uh, we we've really not have uh, had a uh, anyone uh, uh, punished or penalized uh, at this stage because 
all of the, whether it's the different security agencies or the difficult, difficult uh, the different economic interest groups that are uh, represented in the port, all of them have political cover. And so, as I said, I mean, it's like a, the port is, is a kind of a, a miniature uh, of state existing on itself. And the explosion sim- simply brought all this, uh, this to bear. As the public recognizes this unequal distribution of aid, what effect is this unequal response or distribution of aid having on Lebanese politics? Well, look, the, the way the way uh, the explosion affected the country is different because of the location of the explosion. Now, we, we, we do not have a kind of a centralized state-sponsored distribution of aid. There's a lot of aid that has come into the country uh, through the airport, and this is donations uh, from uh, different countries. Some of it is food aid, some of it is medical, in some cases, whole, you know, uh, mobile hospitals were donated. Uh, In some cases, flour uh, or diesel, but Actually, nobody knows where this aid is going. In fact, a couple of days ago, we had a, uh, we have a, uh, a story in the news whereby a lot of the flour that has had been donated by the state of Iraq uh, was stored in the uh, sports stadium, and because of the uh, a rain a rainstorm. Uh, water was actually uh, uh, falling on the flower and so on. So the issue of aid uh, is, is problematic because, as I said, a lot of aid came into the country, but we really don't know where it's going. We, we don't have a centralized uh, entity that is uh, undertaking the distribution. What what we've seen in parallel, and this is something that happens always in Lebanon, is civil society, whether the local civil society or expatriates who are mobilizing Lebanese expatriates. These, these are taking on what should be a state response, and they are the ones who actually mobilize very quickly, particularly architects, engineers, and so on, to help people uh, restore their houses before winter starts. And, and, and especially among the expatriate community, we've seen a lot of uh, Lebanese expats uh, mobilizing and um, uh, putting um, uh, donations together and sending them, uh, sending them to uh, NGOs in Lebanon. But that also, I think, is a bit problematic because what has happened is, in some cases, and again, one has to put this in the context of the epicenter of the explosion, the, the, the areas that were mostly hit or mostly damaged are predominantly Christian areas. So a lot of, so the Maronite church, a lot of religious uh, NGOs felt that given that this, that the epicenter of the explosion was in predominantly Christian, Christian areas, then they they should play the leading role and that priority should be given to these areas and that i think has created some 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 friction
in the country. So as far as the the response to, you said, for example, Christian communities, how has the international aid response also f- perhaps had its unequal distributions of aid to certain communities or certain prioritizations of aid projects? Much of the aid uh, came in to the Lebanese state. And as I said, almost all of it came in through the airport and it was organized by the Lebanese army. And the Lebanese army was simply responsible for logistics and storage. They, when asked, they will tell you, we're not responsible for distributing it. This is the government's uh, uh, prerogative. Only in the case of French aid, aid coming from France, did we see a big chunk of it targeting uh, Francophonic cultural, uh, Francophonic Catholic schools. But this is simply because of the colonial connection. That is, France, uh, who created Lebanon, has been really, uh, has created the the, the, the Francophonic schools, the Catholic schools, uh, uh, that exists till, till this day. And when the French president came to Lebanon, he made it a point to say that we want to send direct aid to uh, this these uh, French schools in Lebanon uh, that are suffering from the economic crisis and recently also uh, as a result of the ex- explosion. But But much of the international aid uh, that came into the country does not target uh, religious groups uh, per se. They target the areas uh, uh, that were hit. But as I said, because uh, the the epicenter of the uh, explosion hit predominantly Christian areas, uh, then th- that's why a lot of it is going uh, is going there. There were reportedly a number of people um, who knew that the ammonium nitrate storage was there and that it was a potential hazard. Um, Are there any similar risks that are present right now in Lebanon that have the potential to become a disaster in the future that people currently know about but are not necessarily doing anything about? Well, again, the whole story behind people knowing Uh, many, many years ago about the existence of this ammonium nitrate and the quantity that existed in the port, again, tells you something about the kind of post-war state that you have in Lebanon in the sense that, you know, people wrote reports. uh, Some of these reports went all the way up to the uh, presidency or to the prime minister's office or to important uh, customs authorities and security authorities, but nobody did did anything. Again, I think this is really emblematic of the kind of state that exists in Lebanon, where institutions do not function uh, uh, on their own. You know, somebody has to uh, somebody has to be personally invested in something for action to be taken. Uh, We've, we've, we've seen, I don't know if you've seen this, but there's been recreation of the, the site of the ammonium nitrate recently by some architectural groups. And I, it shows you very clearly 
what kind of wretched uh, conditions uh, these uh, the ammonium nitrate was stored in. Uh, now, what is interesting is that a couple of days ago, we've there is news that the Lebanese army, and as part of its effort to clean and take stock of what's what exists in the port, actually found containers that contain uh, dangerous material that would, if it if, if if explodes, would wipe out the whole capital. This is after the explosion. Huh? And they don't have the technology, the know-how to dispose of this uh, material. And uh, they have contracted a German company to, to uh, d- dispose of the, of the material. So I, again, I think all of this tells you something about what kind of a port we had in the middle of the city. A kind of a ticking bomb that was just laying there and some of us would, would pass by that area every day. But because its main function was to serve the political, uh, the political economy of corruption in post-war Lebanon, no state agency felt obliged to, to, to do anything about this kind of uh, 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 you know, state, if you like, within, within the state. So given all of these deficiencies and issues you've described, uh, what sort of uh, palpable efforts or institutional reforms would you like to see by the Lebanese government to effectively deal with the current disaster and prevent future disasters uh, like the ones you said were, like the materials you said were uncovered a few days ago? Well, I I think... I mean, the most important lesson is to have uh, to create a proper centralized disaster risk management unit, one that can uh, operate uh, across the whole country and one that can be given the kind of prerogatives that would allow it to undertake uh, disaster relief efforts and planning outside political calculations. But as I said earlier, the, you know, and, and, you know, today we have another uh, uh, disaster, which is the COVID-19 uh, public health crisis. And again, you've seen uh, the state having to bring, bring an external uh, medical expertise uh, to, to deal with, 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 this, with, this, uh, with this crisis. The main obstacle against this is, is sectarian clientelistic calculations because any kind of any, any centralized unit that would be created anew would have to take away from the prerogatives of existing, uh, existing agencies. And that, since 2001, believe it or not, this has been the main reason why uh, the government has not created a, a truly uh, centralized uh, disaster risk management unit. The one that exists now is so understaffed and its prerogatives are so minimal that it cannot undertake the kind of work that you need to anticipate or to respond to, 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 to disasters. So given this, are you optimistic that uh, this sort of more... Uh, a stronger risk risk management uh, unit will be created or pessimistic about those prospects? 
No, I'm not optimistic because, again, I think the, the root problem is the kind of state that was created in the post-war era. And, and again, you know, we are now, uh, the country is now suffering from an overlapping economic, financial, monetary, uh, public health crisis. Uh, and so I think, uh, you know, the last thing that the political sectarian elite will want to do at, at, at this time of crisis, of intense crisis, is to dismantle the kind of clientelistic institutions that help them, you know, maintain uh, the support of their of their partisans. Uh, I, I don't think uh, I don't think uh, uh, you know uh, creating a centralized uh, unit is a priority for them at this stage. Even though you know the explosion and the COVID nineteen uh, crisis. Uh, have have demonstrated to us very clearly that we we cannot handle uh, 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 you know disasters and, and crises of large scale. So, given what you've said about the political developments following the explosion thus far, um, what do you see as future, long term, or short term political impacts of the explosion? Well, the immediate reaction has been. Uh, for a for a big chunk of the professional com- professional classes, and particularly Christians who lived in the areas that were uh, directly hit by the explosion, is exit. They they've just packed their bags and left. But we have to again, we have to put this in its proper context. The country was suffering from a devastating financial economic crisis before the explosion. And what the explosion demonstrated, it felt as if it's the last nail in the coffin. So for a, for a whole class, for a whole professional class, you know, doctors and so on, uh, they've just, you know, decided to, 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 to pack and, and leave the country. And this has created a huge uh, talent uh, drain in the country. The other thing that I fear is, uh, you know, the explosion and the fact that uh, uh, the the areas that were damaged the most were predominantly Christian areas and all the stories about, you know, what caused the explosion and what's the responsibility of the state and so on. It has also animated, a, a, you know, this this discourse of uh, the failure of of this the Lebanese experiment, and that the different sectarian communities want are turning inwards and demanding greater, particularly among the Christians, demanding greater uh, uh, decentralization and 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 local autonomy. I think I think these two issues are are very powerful uh, today. Thank you so much for speaking with us today, Professor. Um, We just have one last question for you. Uh, What will you be looking out for as signals or signposts of how the political situation 
in Lebanon is developing in the coming months and years? Well, again, so so the Titanic is sinking, okay? Uh, and the main question now uh, is what will those who have let the Titanic sink, how are they going to react? And by that I mean, what will the political sectarian elite that led us to the, this overlapping economic, fiscal, monetary uh, collapse, what will they do? And I think, you know, uh, there are two choices here. One is to allow for uh, the emergence of a truly professional, merit-based cabinet with extraordinary legislative powers to come in and to not so much clean house as stabilize the situation and demonstrate to the international community that they can uh, that they can offer the country aid uh, in exchange for uh, true structural reforms and i think this is a this is a an alternative that the political elite loathes the alternative is to actually do nothing and to use in fact the collapse of the country to escape any kind of accountability for the uh, origins and the roots of the present collapse. And my fear that, that you know, uh, as, as strange as this may sound, my fear is that maybe this is indeed the, the, the strategy of the, uh, the, the, the political elite. Dr. Salute, thank you for taking the time to provide your valuable insight and perspective today. Thank you so much.